This is Black Men Speak, a podcast that highlights ordinary Black men doing extraordinary things. I am your host, Keith Dent. Has everyone heard of the talk? For those of you that haven't, it's a conversation most Black parents in the United States feel compelled to have with their children and teenagers about the dangers they face due to racism or unjust treatment from authority figures, law enforcement, or other parties, and how to de-escalate them. This talk is especially targeted for our boys of color, since they have more of a chance to get injured or die at the hands of law enforcement than other races. I remember having to give my son the talk after he and his friends were questioned for being in a park late at night. It can be terrifying and scary. Well, the talk has been eloquently and graphically portrayed by our Pulitzer Prize winning artist, Darren Bell, whose memoir tells an overtly personal and sociopolitical commentary about the talk he had with his mother at the age of six, based on this encounter with the police. I wanted them to see the six foot tall police officer standing over a six year old boy and telling him to drop the weapon and reaching for his own gun. Up until the time he had to do the same thing for his son. The illustrations are so good. You almost feel like you are part of the story. And for any brother growing up during this time period, you can certainly relate to the challenges he had because some of them were probably your own. The story was so familiar and compelling, I couldn't put the book down. I completed it in the day. So I can't wait to speak with Darren to tell me his thoughts and what he was going through during this time. On that note, let's start the show. Darren, welcome to the show. How are you doing today? I'm great. Thanks for having me. Great. So for um, individuals uh, that don't know about your book, and I know you're from LA or from California for the most, for the most part, give me a sense of where in LA you lived and what was really the racial makeup there because when I first started to read the book, I didn't really get a sense of, you know, the challenges that you would hear, especially for a young kid. And this is kind of before, and you can correct me, but for the crack epidemic and things like that. So yes, if you could just highlight that for me. Well, I actually lived all over LA. I was born at my grandfather's house, um, which was near the border of Inglewood, um, right by Florence and Normandy, where the where the riots happened in the 90s. And I grew up largely, um, in the first few chapters of the book, I was in East Los Angeles. Um, we, we moved there after trying to move to a white neighborhood and, and not being, uh, you know, that didn't turn out too well. That's, mm. But I'm gonna go into that in my, in my next book that I'm working on. We were basically run out of uh, Beverly Hills. Beverly Hills at the time had some, had some like working class areas, but they were only for white people. And my parents, my my father being black, um, you know, were were not accepted there. So we we moved to East Los Angeles, which at the time was mostly Latino and Asian, um, but 
and, and white. There were very few black people there. And that's that's where I spent my my formative years, you know, not being allowed to play with other kids because their parents would come out and call them back in when they saw them with me. Mm. Um, and, you know, it, you know, when I when I got to be a teenager, we moved out to the valley, which was pretty diverse. It was it was mostly, again, Latino, white, Asian. There were more black people. Um, you know, it seemed like it seemed like a rainbow compared to where I'd spent my my younger years. Okay, very fascinating. Um, and so, your first kind of foray into how to deal with the police came when you were uh, given a water gun by your mom, and I found it very interesting because you know that is kind of <laughs> I mean that was kind of a, a play toy, a toy where it kind of killed two birds with one stone. One, you could kind of cool off during the summertime. Mm-hmm. And two, it was just a way to I guess, kind of do the cops and robbers thing or the Western thing. That was a toy that boys would play with. So did you understand initially why, um, when you were given the gun, why it had to look, it didn't look like a real gun and why it had to be green? Did you understand all of that? No, no, it made no sense to me. You know, I was I was six at the time, and to be honest, I thought I thought it was an ex. My my mom told me she gave me the talk when I asked why the water gun didn't look real, and I let the talk go in one ear and out the other because I was convinced that she had just gone to the ninety nine cent store and bought the cheapest gun there was, and <laughs> okay. now she was trying to rationalize it with with this. Complete nonsense that made absolutely no sense to me. She told me that my my little my white friends, I you know, they could play with totally realistic looking guns, and if the police looked at them or or anybody else would look at them and and just see pure innocence, but if they looked at me, they would see a thug, um, and you know something bad might happen to me, and so that made no sense. I, I thought you know I thought this this woman is just cheap. <laughs> <laughs> And, and did you have a understanding of race at that time? Well, I, you know, I, I sort of knew about race because, um, because my my father and I, I mean, we were we were not very close or anything. But one thing we shared was he would love he he loved to watch like All in the Family and the Jeffersons mm. and. You know, he would let me watch those with him and, and we'd laugh together and I would see them talk about race. And I knew that race was an issue, but also I knew that these shows were made by people who at the time I considered to be very old. And I thought, you know, they're talking about the world they grew up in and, you know, in the 60s and 70s. And, you know, this is the 80s. Things are things are different now. Um. So I knew I knew vaguely about race, but when when I when I experienced it, like for instance, I I told you when I was playing with kids outside, their parents would often come out and drag them back in. I did not think that was about my race. I thought that was because there was just something wrong with me, like you know maybe I don't know, maybe I was threatening, or maybe you know maybe I had done something bad and they found out. Um, cause you know, when you're a kid, you don't really know when you've done something bad until, until they tell you. Mm, so I, right. I thought, 
I thought, you know, I thought it was my fault. And, you know, it wasn't until much later that I realized that race was actually at the heart of what was happening to me. And what a load to carry, especially, you know, when you're a kid, playing is kind of the most social thing that you can do with another kid. And so to to carry around to think that something was wrong with you, that you, in order for you not to do the, the one thing that makes <laughs> kind of being a kid worthwhile. And so because of that, did that help you form your vivid imagination at such a young age, the way you wove, you know, your Star Wars into the book was, was awesome because, you know, that was the movie back then. And so was that really the catalyst? Yeah, I, I think it was. I mean, there, there were so many times where I was left standing by myself on the, on the street, on the sidewalk with a ball that I'd been trying to play with someone with. And, you know, so I would, I would, I think I would kind of, you know, there's, there's virtual reality goggles now. Yeah. When you're a kid, right. you don't need those. You've got your imagination. So I, you know, I, I would, I would let my imagination run. And also I started collecting comic books at around the same time. And um, I would lose myself in, in those worlds, the, those like virtual worlds, especially the X-Men, which, you know, I, gravitated toward that because it dealt with bigotry, discrimination. And I think on a subconscious level, I knew that that's what I was dealing with. Mm -hmm. And reading those, reading those comic books and graphic novels really helped. They, they were like, they were kind of like a compass that helped me through the, through those woods. Okay. Yeah. Um, I was not a, com I was not a comic book reader uh, that, that in depth i did know of them of course um and so when you said that x-men dealt with bigotry i'm like oh wow i should have been reading those i should have been reading those comic books uh, back in the day you had mentioned your dad um and so you he had a very telling part of your in the book where you had asked your dad about about race and what were some of the issues uh that he had and he he kind of skirted around the issue, but he told a story and whereby your mom was very direct, almost protective about um, kind of the racial issues. So what was the what was kind of the main difference between the two of them in regards to race? Well, my my dad, um, you know, to this day, I, I don't know what most of his experiences were. I mean, he 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 chose to i think delete them from his memory and and didn't tell me didn't share anything with me but it seemed like some pretty traumatic stuff must have happened and from what i gathered um from my mom and a few other people he was he was he went through a lot he was bullied relentlessly by black kids but also mostly by by white kids as he was growing up and so there's some trauma there to when I asked him about race, there was some trauma that it was dredging up. When my mom talked to me about it, you know, she's not she's not black, so she didn't to her, I think it was more academic. It was more um, you know, it was there was no pain, no personal pain involved in her telling me what was happening. 
Um, so it, it was easier for her to warn me about it all. And for my dad, who was pretending that, that none of it ever, ever hurt him, none of it ever touched him, there was no way he was going to be able to warn me that it was going to touch me because he, he was too busy pretending that it never happened. How did that shape, I guess, your journey through adolescence? Well, I, as I said, my mom wasn't black, so I didn't believe her, basically. Um, so as, as, I, as I journeyed through adolescence, I kept running into, into incidents where if I had believed her, I would have known what to expect. And, you know, I would have, it would have been easier to process what was happening. And I wouldn't have internalized so much of it and thought mm. that so much of it was my own fault. Um, yeah. So I, if I, I wish I had had this book, the talk when I was little, I, I would have, I, I think I would have, I would have seen that she actually knew what she was talking about. Okay. We'll talk further, but I want to touch upon this question since it's at top of mind, is that some of the feedback that you've received from, I guess, other men, especially for those that have grown up in white spaces, did they feel kind of the same way and eternal had felt that they had to internalize a lot of things because they didn't have a way to communicate some of the issues that they were having? Um. Yeah, some of it, but most of the most of the feedback I've received hasn't hasn't really been people talking about their own journeys. They they've been talking about their children and mm. and how how much easier it is to have the talk with this book if they read it with their children cuz children are children are visual learners. Um, and th there's there's just something powerful about graphic novels. It it involves one side of your brain with the text and the other side with the with the imagery, and it's a lot easier for children to to process things that way and to understand difficult concepts. Mm, okay, okay, but I, I guess for my own personally, I really felt the weight of some of the issues that you're having especially through the the pictures uh, with the text to go along with it, almost as if um, I was part of the story. <laughs> I, was like, I, was like, I was like, wow, this is kind of some of the things that were part of my life when I didn't even realize it. Because I think as men, we kind of go through those challenges, but then we'll, we'll push them to the side. Yeah. Uh, and then they kind of, some, in certain instances, they'll bubble up. And that's what I thought the book uh, did for me. It, some of the things that I might have pushed to the side and didn't have a way to express them came out in the book. And that's what I in really enjoyed. Oh, um, thank, that's, that's actually what I was getting at before I, before I lost my train of thought. Yeah. Um, as men, this is, this is difficult to talk about. And it just, just as with my father, you know, we would rather choose. We would rather choose to believe that that um, you know we could brush all this stuff off. So when men talk to me about about my about the talk, they're still doing that. Instead of talking about their own experiences, they're they're talking about their children and how helpful it was for their children. And you know, I'm the more people do that, the more I'm realizing 
they're telling me that it was helpful for themselves, but they they don't want to come right out and say it. Mm -hmm. um, and so kind of to go back, do you think because of the traumatic experiences um, that your, your father had led to uh, the separation of your parents? Um, because I know it didn't touch upon that so much, you know, all of a sudden he just wasn't there. So I'm, I was really curious about that and what, what really happened because the fact that they had, they had even, even come together at all at that time really showed that there was an act of, act of love, especially on your mom's part because of the traumatic experiences that they had actually had together. So I'd love to hear that part. They had a lot of traumatic experiences together. And I mean, she, she, she was Jewish, so she had her own traumatic experiences. Mm -hmm. I think that's why she was able to identify with, with my dad. I mean, she and, she and her family had been run out of neighborhoods. Um, her, my grandfather was an insurance salesman and he, he took a wrong turn into, into a, a, like a Caucasian neighborhood and they stabbed him. Mm. As soon as he said, they said, no, no Jews here. Mm. Um, so, I mean, they, they had this, they had this shared bond of, you know, of being in an America that didn't really want them here. And I think that carried them through for a while. And I think they loved each other, but there was, there was a lot of, a lot of trauma with my father that my mom just didn't understand or relate to. And he did not deal with that in the best way. Um, he, he started to, to look outside, outside the marriage for people who would understand him better. And you know, that, that led to, that led to the split. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And, and then with, with not really at that age understanding what the issues were, how do you think that shaped how you dealt with relationships? Because it was really evident that that was also part of your journey with the talk, even though that was <laughs> could probably be a separate book. Um, but how did that impact how you dealt with your relationships? And then some of the trauma things that you endured in your in in the your young ladies that you dated. Well, I mean, I mean pe people either deal with with that sort of dysfunction by repeating it or by being determined to do the opposite. And I think I was determined to do, to do the opposite. Like my my parents, the root of their problem was they they didn't see eye to eye or communicate well. So you know, I would in relationships probably overshare. You know, I I. I'd say everything I was thinking or feeling. Also, I was determined. I was determined to stay. I was determined not to leave, like my dad did. So, like, I I never I never really had a time in my life where I was just dating. I I went from serious relationship to serious relationship, mm -hmm. each one longer than the last. And you know they they usually ended not because I wanted them to. So, I mean, if I'd probably still be with my high school girlfriend, if, if <laughs> you know, if we hadn't gone to two different colleges. Okay. Okay. Um, so I, I don't, I think, I think that's, you know, that that's effect. That's probably influenced um, my relationship with women. 
Gotcha. And and also, you know, I've I've been determined never to, um, never to do anything that my that my kids that would affect my kids that my kids would be would be ashamed of if they found out, you know, or that they, you know, I I've been I've been thinking I've been trying to live my life for my kids since long before I ever had any kids, mm-hmm. because because of what happened with my parents. Gotcha. Gotcha. Makes sense. It makes sense. Um, because we, you know, we always want to leave a different legacy, you know, a legacy for our kids and, and build upon the things that we learned. Um, right. And, yeah. and my, my father, most of, most of his problem was because um, his, his own father, you know, they, he didn't talk, his father didn't speak to him for about 15 years. They were living in the same house. And my my dad um, said something that offended him that that really hurt his wounded his pride, and mm. I mean it. I'll back up. My my grandfather was the grandson of a slave, and they, this is the grandfather that was in the book, correct? Yeah. Okay. And you know they never owned their own ho- their own home until after World War II. He he saved and he worked he worked his 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 ass off and bought a house. And so then he had a son, and he was trying to teach my father, and he and he was trying to teach him how to care for the house. And my dad just didn't didn't want to do any yard work. My grandfather said, "Well, someday this house is going to be yours." And my dad said, "I don't even want this stupid house." Mm. And this the whole history, like four hundred years of not owning anything and not being allowed to have pride in anything. And my here, my grandfather is the one who changed that, and his son just spits in his face and throws it away. So he didn't talk to him until, until, and this was when he was fourteen. He didn't talk to him until he was twenty-two. Wow. And so, I mean, there there's a whole cycle of fathers not really being there for their kids because because of whatever reason. But it's 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 some kind of trauma having to do with, you know, it's inherited trauma that goes back hundreds of years. Mm-hmm, right. And so I've been determined to break that cycle with with my own son. And, you know, I've I've been just waiting for the chance to do that. Now I have four children of my own and, you know, I'm I'm trying, but, you know, none of us are perfect. I'm sure I'm traumatizing them in some way. Wow. Right. And what's you have? One boy and three girls, two boys and two girls. Two boys and two girls. Okay, yeah. um, I have two boys as well, so I would love to, especially here. Uh, you know how you've done in that in that uh, arena because I think by nature, I think our boys tend to hold their trauma in, mm-hmm. um, even if they have their fathers are around. And and I don't know why. I don't know if you feel this. You get the same thing or feel the same way, but that's kind of what I have um, noticed. Well, you know, I my oldest son, um, he's ten now. I I tucked him in and I I had conversations with him until he fell asleep from the time he was one until the time he was six, and he I think dealt with he dealt with. Um, you know, whatever, 
you know, whatever anxieties he had as a, as a small child really well, because we would, we would talk about it every night. Mm. Um, lately though, I mean, as, as he approaches being, being a, being a teenager and he's got friends who, um, who just like are already telling him to just man up, you know, and, and, you know, if, if they offend him or something, he's, uh, he doesn't tell anybody, mm. you know, when when anything's bothering him. He doesn't tell any. He, he's starting to hold it all in, and I'm not sure what to do other than, I mean, that's the reason I. That's the main reason I wrote this book. Okay, because I mean, he's starting to not talk to me, but he's also starting to read a lot, and especially comic books and graphic novels. So I wrote this book and. It's funny. I tried, I, you know, I tried talking to him, you know, with words, and he didn't really want to hear it. But when I handed him the book, I saw him stay up night after night reading it. Okay. And I'm glad you, and I'm glad you mentioned that because that was going to be my one of my questions. Do you think the book would have been as powerful if you would have wrote it kind of as a memoir instead of a graphic novel? Uh, do you think that really kind of changed or shaped the way it's the information is looked at? I I think so. I mean, other than other than the fact I'm I'm a cartoonist, so this you know I I thought I I thought I'd be able to effectively do it. The reason the reason I wanted it to be a graphic novel is because there's so much prejudice and preconceived notions in this country, in particular. And when you just have the written word, the person who's reading it paints a picture while they're reading it. And that picture is always based it not just on what the what the artist wrote, but on their own prejudices. So I didn't want them to read a book about the talk and you know and and misconstrue things because they were able to you know, to 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 decide for themselves what I looked like, what the other people looked like, what the mm -hmm. situations looked like. I wanted them to see the six foot tall police officer standing over a six year old boy and telling him to drop the weapon and reaching for his own gun. I wanted them to to see that image and not have to. Um, and not be able to just minimize it in their own heads. So I think that's that's what's powerful about the talk. You're looking you're looking at this little kid. You're seeing the the facial expressions. You're seeing the the um, the dynamic between the powerful and and this little kid who's who's powerless. Um, and it's impossible to deny. Yeah, that was amazing uh, because I'm sure some people came to you and said, did that actually happen? It happened. It hundred percent happened. Um, it was burned into my memory and you know, it was, it was one of those things you, you, you'd see when you, sometimes when you close your eyes, it would just come back and you'd see it even if you didn't want to. And that, that was like a demon that I carried with me until, until I wrote this book and I exercised it it stayed with you all that time and when you say demon so how would it i guess how would it bubble up 
in ways that, I don't know if it was paralyzing, but how will it bubble up in your, your everyday life? I, I think it made me less patient for, for people who, um, you know, for people who would deny that, that these sorts of things are happening. For instance, when, when Tamir, right, when the police officer killed Tamir Rice, hmm. um, you know, I, I was, I was working at the time I was drawing cartoons and, um, you know, people always write, always write to me and argue. I had zero patience for people who wrote to say, well, you know, the officer was afraid um, and blah, blah, blah. They'd come up with a hundred reasons why Tamir Rice was at fault. Um, it was hard for me to have to have any kind of conversation with these people because it didn't seem like they were coming from an honest place. You know, I, if... If Tamir Rice had been white, I know they would have seen it totally differently. Right, because he was in the park and he had a he had a water gun. Yeah, and the person who called nine one one said they think it might be a toy gun. So the the police officers knew that as they pulled up, and they did they didn't do what they usually do with white people, where where they pull up at a respectful distance and they try to talk them down respectfully. They put. They wrote. They drove right up to him. They gave him like one second to obey their orders. I don't even know if they gave him any orders. They said they did, but he just the the cop just hopped out of his car and shot him. Didn't take even a even two seconds to to assess the situation. All he saw, as my mom had warned me, all he saw was a threat that needed to be dealt with. The threat. Yeah, a young. A young boy as a threat. Yeah. So I mean, I I drew I drew cartoon after cartoon, um, dozens and dozens of you know I for, I'll, I'll back up for a second. I I was an editorial cartoonist in the '90s in college, and I started freelancing for papers, and I retired from editorial cartooning in 2001 so I could focus on my comic strips, Canderville and Rudy Park, mm -hmm. and. Fast forward to, to 2012, George Zimmerman murders Trayvon Martin. And I covered that in, in Canderville, but there's only so much you could say on the comics page. So I called my syndicate and said that I that I want to do it. I want to get back into editorial cartooning. So I got back into it so I could draw a cartoon about Trayvon Martin. And cover and cover and you know and cover this issue. And I did not expect that over the next few years, I was going to be drawing cartoons on a weekly basis about brand new shootings or murders um, of unarmed black people. Mm -hmm. um, I, I felt like it, you know, I had to. It was, if I didn't do it, who was going to cover it? But I mean, it, it got so infuriating and so demoralizing. You know, when, when you're young, you think that the work you do is going to change the world. And I had to come to terms with the fact that, you know, the more I covered this, the more things were staying the same. I wasn't going to change the world, but I could make sure it doesn't go unnoticed. I could put it down on the record. I could leave a record for, for history of what was happening. Yeah. Uh, so... Yeah, and so that's that's when I sort of 
stopped bothering to to reply to people who would try to rationalize what was happening yeah and that's and that's powerful and i think it's also a way to because the news can be can be spun in such a way where it doesn't look it wasn't as bad as they they made it sound uh but when in a cartoon there's yes you can you use your own lens to shape uh, what's happening, but it's, they can look at the visual and form their own opinion mm-hmm. that, Oh, this is actually, this, this actually occur. And then the only challenge is the person that's viewing it. If they already have <laughs> preconceived notions that it's not happening, um, then, you know, then it doesn't, it doesn't occur. And that was one of the things that was powerful about origin. I don't know if you had seen it yet, um, not yet. When, not yet. You, you, it's a must see. Definitely, it's very powerful. Um, how Ava DuVernay covers that actual um, story, and I won't give give away that part of it, but it was just so powerful to hear, and the way she brought it in. You don't know. It's not all. The coverage is not always there from a news standpoint. Part of it can be cut out. And, and things of that nature. And so it can sway the story. Um, so, but yes, thank you for sharing that. Uh, so I wanted to go back a little bit to your mom and how she basically said that she wanted to clear up or let you know that the world is differently for you and your brother. But in the, in the story, your brother kind of took a different stance on the things that happen. He he had a more realistic view. He kind of blew it off as if, well, you know, these things just happen. It's not, it wasn't more of a racial thing. Is is that accurate in my depiction on well on how he viewed <clears throat> race relations, so to speak? I think he was he was always more like my dad and I was more like my mom. Okay. He he um he thought that I think he he thought that he could kind of make his own reality and he's like mind over matter. He ended up be- becoming an engineer for cuz cuz that's that's his temperament, you mm-hmm. know. He just uh he just thought if he didn't let it bother him, it wouldn't bother him. And if he came up with other reasons for why things were happening, for instance, my my parents were both teachers in the LAUSD, so we were pretty poor because they they don't pay teachers right. anywhere near what they're worth. And so anytime we were discriminated against, my brother would insist that it was because we were poor, because our our clothes weren't as nice as our friends, or you know we just we just didn't look wealthy. And I think it was because that is something that's within his power to change. Mm-hmm. You know, and he he became a, a really successful engineer. He he bought he bought a house a decade before I did, um, and there's some there's some merit in that. I mean, di- different people deal with things differently. I don't think he had the personality where he would have succeeded if he had let himself see how how bad the situation in this country actually is. Mm-hmm. Um, I think he would have, he probably would have wallowed in depression, you know, wow. in, okay. of, 
like me as, as for me i i let all that fuel me because i'm an artist and and artists mm. kind of need some kind of depression some kind of angst something that really really bothers them to inspire their work okay um, so for me it, it it was useful to look at it in what i think is 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 like a clear-eyed view of how um how intractable this problem is the problem of white supremacy it's so insidious that most people don't even don't even realize they're part of they're part of a white supremacist system that mm. this country was founded on and this and and that's continued on to this day um most people would like to believe that it's in the past and my brother was one of those people okay so it's it's curious i'm curious to know what he thought of the book um after you finished it and did he ever share any you know because i'm sure it bubbled up some of the maybe traumatic experience he had that maybe you didn't know about did he share any of those details with you not with me but he he did with he did with our mom and, oh okay and she so she told me so i only know secondhand how how he felt about the book all he told me was that he loved the book um and that he thinks i went very easy on him because he, <laughs> he he thinks there were so many there were so many things i could have could have divulged about him but i didn't um he was a great big brother he doesn't think he was um but i i think it did change the way change the way he saw things cuz it, it he used to he used to tell me when i was a kid just just not to let things bother me and it wasn't until he read the book that he that he saw that there were some things that i couldn't just wish away you know i couldn't wish away that police officer i i couldn't wish away the professor who tried to who tried to accuse me of plagiarism mm, right. without having any any evidence at all um and there there were a bunch of other incidents too and incidents that he didn't have to go through because he well he was lighter he was lighter skinned than i am i'm pretty light skinned he, right. he was lighter skinned than i am oh wow um, okay. his his lips were smaller than mine his nose was a little thinner than mine um yeah in which you mentioned the whole potato head reference which i thought was awesome yeah <laughs> i yeah and so he one thing he told he told our mom was that he finally realized that the reason things were different for him than they were for me is probably because i looked more ethnic than he did and so the same people who treated him with respect um didn't treat me with as much respect automatically mm. and so so many things that he did he just didn't think could be happening like certain teachers he thought were great teachers but teachers who would like come down really hard on me for for the same stuff that they excused with other people he you know he he finally accepted that 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 happened after he oh, read okay. the book okay and i'm i'm glad you said be, to subtle differences of how you looked affected how you were dealt i guess interacted in the world and you had mentioned um your bully so to speak chris <clears throat> right um and how you dealt with that 
um, with him. And so, and at that point, that was kind of, I guess, a turning point for you because you stood up to him or you started to find your voice, so to speak. Um, was that the turning point of really finding your voice and really sort of challenging the norm of that time? Yeah, it it was. I mean, I I stood up to him not physically, I stood up to him by humiliating him, by mocking him in front of people um, with, I mean, it, it, with what was a pretty childish insult, but at the time it was like the height of, 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 of satire. Um, in yeah, my I mean, yeah. In the black community, that would have been normal. <laughs> you know. Yeah. <laughs> so, so yeah, I, I realized that, you know, maybe the best way to deal with, with all this is is to make fun of it and to make fun of the people who who take themselves too seriously and and to make fun of the people who who um who try to use their privilege and their positions of power to to victimize other people right and i think that's that's why that's why i became an editorial cartoonist i mean my my journalism teacher in in a in high school used to used to tell us you know I, I thought he made it up at the time but it's a really old it's a really old saying about journalism that you're supposed to um comfort the afflicted and afflict the comfortable mm. and i to this day i think that's what my role is that concludes part one of my discussion with darren bell arthur of the talk in part two we discuss his later life, as well as winning the Pulitzer Prize back in 2019. And we will also talk about where we may be headed as a country. Black Men Speak was written, produced, and edited by me, Keith Dent. You can catch previous episodes wherever you get your favorite podcasts. And don't forget to come back next week. If you get a chance get a copy of Darren's book, The Talk. Not only will it help you have a conversation with your kids, it might help some of the pain you may have been carrying but never spoke about it. Peace.